3CR broadcasts on the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. We wish to acknowledge their elders past and present. Their sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast 3CR. It's the 1st of September today. And um, that came around really quickly, I feel. I don't know about anyone listening in, but yeah, suddenly August just disappeared. Um, I'm in the studio by myself today. We've got Ella at home. Hope you're having a wonderful morning, Ella. And um, Claudia is going to be with us live from her home studio um, in the show as well. So we've got heaps going on still. Obviously, there's never a dull moment with us. Um, And because I've got nobody to chat to in the studio, I'm just going to get straight on with it. So we've got a bit of a busy show today. At the beginning of the show, so first up at 7.15 or potentially a wee bit before then, we're going to speak with or we're going to hear from Judith, our old friend Judith from Monday Breakfast and Wednesday Breakfast, good friend of 3CRs, but she's now on Communication Mixdown on Mondays and we're going to hear an interview that she did yesterday about the um, Sharia law and what that might look like and eventuate in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. So we're going to hear from Judith and then at 7.30 we're going to speak with Claudia who's at home setting up her home studio ready this morning who's going to be speaking to author and anthropologist Aaron J. Jackson about his new book Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities. And then after that, just past eight, I'm going to speak to Dr. Helen Paik from um, the University of New South Wales, um, who is in the computer science and engineering world, all about the privacy concerns around the digital vaccine passport. So we're going to have a little chat about that and really what are the concerns there? What do we know that's happening in Europe that we can try and emulate a little bit? Or really just what Helen thinks about that. And so that is what we've got coming up on the show. But today we're going to just kick off with a beautiful number for a Wednesday morning. Rim Kwaku Abeng Kasa Love.
If you weren't up and dancing to that song, you weren't me, firstly, because I was having a bit of a dance to myself in the studio. But how can you not? It's just too catchy. But that is such a beautiful tune, and we love to kick off the show with that on Wednesday breakfast. But now up, we have Judith Peppard. We're going to hear about Sharia law and how this might be interpreted and implemented under Taliban rule. So over the last two weeks, we've seen the devastating and often incredibly disturbing images of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and the ensuing attempts to flee the country. The US have now officially left Afghanistan and many questions remain about what life under Taliban rule will look like, particularly for women and girls of Afghanistan. The Taliban have stated that women will have their rights with the bounds of Sharia law. But what does that mean? 
We're going to take a listen to a conversation from Judith Peppard on 3CR's Communication Mixdown, which is at Mondays at 6pm, which gives us some helpful background information to the unfolding crisis we've been covering on 3CR Breakfast. Judith spoke with Associate Professor Suleya Kiskin from the Centre of Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University, who recently co-authored an article published on the conversation entitled What is Sharia Law and what version of it is the Taliban likely to implement? Judith started by asking Suleya what Sharia Law is and how it came about. The Sharia Law is also known as Islamic Law, It's really an interpretation of the Quran, which is the holy book for Muslims, and the Hadith, which is Prophet Muhammad's narrations, Sharia or Islamic law, an attempt to interpret what's written in those books. And so you can think of Sharia as a way of life. It's about the worship aspect. It's about social justice aspect, person, life, spirituality. So it actually covers a whole range of areas. During Prophet Muhammad's time when he was living, he receives this revelation, the Quran, revealed over a period of 23 years. And he's amongst his people, what we call the companions, a bit like the disciples of Jesus. They've embraced this new religion and they're trying to, I guess, live their life now based on the guidelines and the rulings of this new religion. And so as part of that, there are a number of modifications that they make to their life, like they start to pray five times a day, they stop drinking alcohol. So they really transform their lives with the intention of getting closer to God. And so if there's something that they're uncertain about, they would normally ask Prophet Muhammad, okay, what about in this scenario? What do we do? But then when Muhammad passed away, there was not that reference point. So what they then had to do is work out a system where by looking at the Quran, by looking at the Hadith, work out what do we do in these different scenarios? It came about post-Muhammad's time with this intention of documenting how one should live their life according to Islam. And that's where the word Sharia came through. And a number of scholars took this initiative and started to undertake this process of codifying, documenting, putting it into volumes a bit like law books of today. So just giving guidelines in so many various areas. And those books have existed for 1400 years and they've been looked at or reapproached throughout history. So that's really how it started. So what we're talking about is a group of people who are interpreting the sayings of the prophet and creating something called Sharia or Islamic law. That's right. The sayings of the Prophet and the Quranic verses. Because just with the Quran, it doesn't explicitly always give you instructions on how to do things. So, for example, the Quran talks about five daily prayers, but it doesn't go into the details of how that's got to be done. But Muhammad, through his life, by practicing it and by how he practiced it being documented, the scholars would look at both the Quran and the Hadith to work out, all right, this is how it's done. This is how many times it's got to be done. So both of them come hand in hand, the Quran and the Hadith. I guess within Islam, of course, there would be debates about some of those interpretations. Absolutely. And with the Hadith, it's basically what the Prophet Muhammad said and then other people hearing it. Sometimes you have two, three generations pass before it gets documented. So there's a room for human error when you're talking about the Hadith. Uh, There's been a lot of questions about, well, is this really authentic? Did he really say this? It really does open it up to scrutiny. And I think that's a healthy thing. Like other religions, debates and interpretations vary. I'm just wondering, how did the law that was created compare with perhaps some of the alternatives in the 7th, 8th, 9th century? Like The Islamic civilization was probably at its peak between the 
8th to the 12th, 13th century, advanced with technology, economy, and knowledge. And this showed in the way that Islamic law or Sharia was understood for its time, quite sophisticated for the times, particularly for women, compared to opportunities they had in other societies or pre-Islam, they were quite empowered and had the opportunity to educate themselves and to be an important part of society. Given that sophistication, and obviously many scholars working on this, and of course there's documents particularly in Spain where scholars from different backgrounds came together, Islamic and Christian and Jewish, to exchange their scholarship. It was developed. So, So what happened? Life or the world got in its way. And that's why I highlighted that the advancement of sophistication we saw with the Sharia is very much correlated with where the Islamic civilizations were at the time. It was considered the golden age for Muslims. And scientifically, especially, there was huge advancements that happened. But then, like all civilizations, the Islamic civilizations declined. And particularly in the 18th, 19th century, when a civilization declines, its ability to develop knowledge, critical thinking, drastically drops. You could see that this was manifest in the Islamic law as well. Also, going back to the 11th, 12th century, as mentioned in the article, it was so systemized, the Islamic law, by the 11th, 12th century that some scholars were of the view, look, we've coded it all pretty much. We've documented everything. We've got volumes and volumes. It's all been set out. The future generations don't need to do anything. There was that kind of thinking. It's known as the ijtihad. Ijtihad means interpretation of the Islamic law door in their mind should have been closed because it's all been done. But society changes. And when society changes, you've got to revisit some of the rulings, whether it's women's presence in society or how you interact with other faiths. You need to keep revisiting them. So I think it was somewhat naive to think that you wouldn't have to revisit Islamic law. So that was a big factor in why we see its decline. But also what we see in the 20th century is a lot of Muslim countries were colonized and there were new laws that were set into these countries almost overnight. Any affiliation of those governments with Islam were scrapped. This kind of put the Islamic scholars to the periphery of society. They didn't have that support. They didn't have that presence within society to develop it because they could not apply it. Those opportunities for talking, discussion, like you mentioned, for scholars to come together to talk about them, debate about them, that kind of environment was not there anymore in the 20th century. This gives an opportunity for people to stand up and say, look, we don't have any leadership in this space, I'll be the leader. There was a vacuum. And that's where you have groups like ISIS that do come up and they say, well, no one's really doing what's needed for the Muslim world, we'll do it which is a very dangerous position to be in. But it also draws a lot of people in, sadly, because it gives them hope. That was particularly the case maybe three, four years ago with ISIS. But now that a lot of people have seen the dark side of ISIS, they realise that it's far from being anything Islamic. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Suleyha Keskin, an Associate Professor in Islamic Studies at Charles Sturt University. Suleyha has explained how Sharia law evolved during the golden age of Islam, and that it was very progressive for its time, but that the closure of debate in the 12th century prevented Sharia from adapting to new social and technological developments. And finally, colonization led to even further decline, and there was a vacuum where groups like ISIS could come in and interpret Sharia in ways that bear little resemblance to the principles that Sharia originally stood for. In their paper, Zuleya and Dr. Mehmet Olzalp described three contemporary Muslim views on Sharia. 
The first is that it's just no longer applicable or useful. The second, the ultra-conservative view, is that it's perfect and modern societies should go back to it. A view held by less than 1% of the world's 1.1 billion Muslims. And a third view, which proposes that committees of Islamic scholars, alongside scientists and sociologists, should examine Sharia law and bring it up to date, consistent with the contemporary world, Ayas where she would fit within this framework. I would fit into the third category. thing is, I do understand that there is a lot of negative affiliations with the word Sharia. Actually, just as a side note, one of my classes that I teach, Islam in the Modern World, which is predominantly Muslim students, I asked, would you want Sharia? And about 70 to 80% of them said that they would not want Sharia. It's not just the West that has this negative connotations around Sharia, but Muslims do as well. So it's kind of like this word I feel that's been hijacked by extremists, and it's very hard to claim back. So even when I say, yes, I do think Sharia is adaptable to today's time, I would just reword that and say, I think that the Islamic way of life, it's possible to adapt it to today's life, but we need to revisit some of the rulings or some of the interpretations that are there, especially around technology, women, and just society in general, because it's really the underlying principles that are more important. They are possibly applicable to different settings, different times, but it really needs knowledge and skills and expertise to be able to do that. What are some of the principles? Freedom of speech is one of them. Freedom of religion is another one. Freedom of lineage. You know, everyone has the right to have offsprings and continue their lineage. And just thinking of freedom of speech, for example, that's probably an area that we're seeing a huge struggle in the Muslim world. Because if anyone says anything, there's a huge crackdown on them. They could be jailed or they could even be killed for saying something against their government. What I see in Muslim world is where Muslim governments are sometimes using religion as a tool for this purpose of their power. And that doesn't help with the image of Islam either. Yes. And so you've talked about some of the positive principles that are there that underpin Sharia, at least originally, and then some of the reasons things aren't what they should be. How do you feel as a Muslim yourself? about the actions of the ultra-conservatives. How do you feel when you hear those stories? To be honest, this is the other challenge. If you were to ask me, do you see a country, especially Muslim countries, that you think best reflect uh, Islamic law, I couldn't show you one. I wouldn't be able to show you one. And there are some that do worse than others, such as Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Pakistan's not the best either. But then there are others that are probably doing better, but There is room for improvement like Malaysia and Indonesia. When you see countries who are using Islam as a way to push their agenda of power, it has a very big damaging effect on the religion. And not only does the non-Muslims look at it foreignly, but also Muslims get cold or distant from that religion because they think that's not what I want in Islam. I remember not too long after 9-11, whether it was a year or a couple, I was living in Adelaide at the time and I was in Rundle Mall, which is a sort of shopping area. And there's a young man there all by himself with a sign saying, Islam is about love. And uh, I thought, amazing courage, amazing frustration. (laughs) I was able to go up to him and say, yes, I know that. But I didn't know what else I could say. I just really admired his courage at that moment. It's heartbreaking. It's sad. And particularly, I do feel, especially when they explicitly use the religion, and ISIS did this a lot, 
they were probably a bit more cunning, making sure they used Islamic terminology when they were doing horrendous crimes. And this would frustrate me because I could see they were cherry picking what they wanted to justify what they were doing. But it worked also because Muslims who aren't that knowledgeable about their religion, because they were hearing Islamic narratives, they were being sucked into it. So I find it very disheartening, devastating, because to me, Islam is not that. And it just seems so distant to what I think Islam teaches and the peace and the serenity that this religion can bring. And then you have this portrayal, which is completely opposite to my understanding of Islam. It, it can be tiring, Judith, it really can, because we're expected as Muslims to constantly condemn terrorism. And you have two schools of thought on this uh, amongst Muslims. Some would say, look, I didn't commit that crime. And then there are others where I probably sit on more so, where people that genuinely don't know the difference between these acts taken by groups like ISIS and what Islam teaches. So it needs that constant reiteration, constant repetition that this isn't Islam they don't represent who I am. I condemn terrorist attacks. Uh, so there's this ongoing uh, repetition that you do need to do. You know, if you listen to the 11 o'clock press conferences, they constantly get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. It seems as human beings, we need that repetition to reinforce something, especially when we're hearing other things. So I do understand people's genuine concerns or uncertainty or question marks on the matter. Uh, but as Muslims, it can be quite exhausting. Zuleha Keskin, Associate Professor in Islamic Studies at Charles Sturt University, talking about the paper that she co-authored with Dr. Mehmet Ozalp. Explainer, what is Sharia law and what version of it is the Taliban likely to implement? You're on 3CR. I'm Judith Peppard. And now we look a bit more at what we might expect from the Taliban in Afghanistan and really it's not at all clear. They've changed, which is very interesting, but will they lapse back to the way they were 20 years ago? You have to know the pace of the society that you live in and respond to it. And that requires wisdom, I feel. And so what do you think will happen? I mean, what are the options for the Taliban? There's two things. They might come down with the iron fist and really go back to controlling the society that they live in, back to the barbaric understanding of Islamic law. But there are signs that they're not as bad as they used to be. And I think they've got a better awareness of society now. They're using technology much more than the, what they were. And the minute you're tapping into technology, you're tapping into what people think, how society functions, what has worked in society and what hasn't. So there is hope that they may have developed. That's why I do argue with Dr. Mehmet that their stance won't be as barbaric as it was 20 years ago, considering the country's been in war for 40 years, considering that there's pressures of ISIS. Now we're talking about ISIS-K. These pressures will affect their thinking, their judgment, and what is to come. Say if it's women's rights, they, they decide to do something about that. You know, how broad will their influence be across the country? That's a good point, because there's early signs that they're being a bit more tolerant. They've got female interviewers in the streets, which would not have been possible 20 years ago. They said that they will allow girls to go to school. It's a big country. So the Taliban probably will be quite broad in their spectrum as well. Some will be on board with that narrative, whereas others will be more conservative, especially in rural places. So we're not going to see a, an application of whatever law they're thinking equally across the country. Their use of Sharia could be a genuine but yet naive approach that they've got. 
if they don't have these scholarly people that have come through because the country's been at war for 40 years. But at the same time, they also have to think about security, uh, about all these other countries said that are pressuring and wanting an influence on the country. And um, that will naturally affect it too. And we're talking about countries like Pakistan, even China, Russia, and US is left, but they will try to. So in a way, I feel like Afghan is like this chess game and everyone's doing these moves, including Saudi Arabia and UAE. Everyone wants a part of it. And that plays out in very complex ways. We're not always aware of what's happening behind the scenes. So a bit more critical thinking, reading on, you know, the different aspects of what's happening. It, it does shed a bit more light on Afghanistan and why it is the way it is. That was Judith Peppard speaking with Associate Professor Saleya Kiskin from the Centre of Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charleston University about Sharia law and what might eventuate in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. The conversation was originally broadcast on Communication Mixdown on Monday at 6pm, so that's just just two days ago. Um, So a big thank you to Judith for sharing that with us today. And we are just about to hear Claudia. We'll be back very quickly. As Father's Day approaches this Sunday, many men will be reflecting on their relationship with their children as well as their own fathers. Our next guest is someone with unusual insight into these relationships and the emotional world of fathers. Aaron J. Jackson is an anthropologist and lecturer at Victoria University, but he's foremost a father and carer. Through parenting a severely disabled child and working with other fathers of disabled children, Aaron has developed an acute understanding of what it means to be a carer and the way in which caring creates new possibilities for fathers understanding themselves, their manhood and the children they love. His book, Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities is out now. And he's here with us at 3CR to share his insights with our listeners. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you with us. You've written an incredible book. I'm hoping that we can give it justice this morning and explore so many of the important messages and areas that you've enlightened us with. The book's a unique mix of genres, part memoir, part creative nonfiction, part anthropological study. Can you tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book? Yeah, so um, my life as a caregiver started in 2011 when my son Dakota was four months old. Um, He started having multiple seizures a day, grand mal seizures, so they were very frightening. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, And so... Initially, he was diagnosed with uh, global developmental delay and then uh, and hypotonia, which is low muscle tone, and then a lot later on down the track with having a um, profound intellectual disability. So naturally, I was interested in parents' experiences 
um, and how they go about orienting themselves, you know, after facing this kind of disruption. Um, and the more I read and researched, the more I realised that um, fathers were rarely the focus in the, in the context of, of primary caregiving and fathers in the context of caring for a child with severe disabilities, even less so. And so that was really my starting point, my jumping off point for my research. And then you headed off to the United States to do field work. Exactly, yeah. So then I spent um, the next 12 months sort of on and off in the States, primarily in Arizona, but it was multi-sided, um, my research. So I spent some time in Ohio and Massachusetts as well, uh, Massachusetts with a dad um, there, you know, just, uh, you know, participating in their lives, getting to know them like anthropologists do when they're on field work. Um, yeah, so I did that over a year and then and then started, you know, writing things up once certain themes became clear. And you talked about the disruption that you experienced, and this is a, an area that's explored in, in the book. In fact, you called it a vertigo of existential disruption. I was wondering if you might read a small extract from your book. In fact, I think it's a, a section where you've, you've met Paul, one of the carers that you uh, work with through your fieldwork and his daughter, Pearl, and then you go home and reflect on what this is meaning for you and what you're feeling at the time. Okay. So lying awake in bed that night, I recognised my life in Pearl's fussing and yelling, which filled the house and filtered into my bedroom, breaking the dead silence. And in the sound of Paul's pacing footsteps outside my bedroom door as he opened and closed cupboards and rattled drawers. Anxiety around Dakota's disability cropped up in the furrows of my mind. I thought of how very little I'd brought with me from my previous life to equip me for this one as his caregiver. Although he was only four, sufficient uncertainty and distress had already been occasioned for me to know that I was living a life that felt deeply out of sync with the life I had lived and the lives of those around me. Pearl was 22 years old, 18 years older than Dakota, and yet for Paul, there seemed to be no end to the confusion, distress and noise associated with his life as her caregiver. The truth is, I've been feeling badly about what I perceived to be my inadequacies as a father for some time. I was living with a gnawing uncertainty in what felt like a deeply ambiguous and ungrounded world. Finally, the house fell silent again. Thank you. It's a beautiful piece. You Thanks. talked about the feeling of being ill-equipped for caregiving and the feeling of inadequacy. And I know that's also something that came up in the work you did with the men you interviewed. A number of them also expressed feelings of inadequacy and not feeling like they were up to the job, so to speak, or not good enough. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that and particularly why men might struggle with those feelings? So I think partly this is the um, disruption that you mentioned. Um, obviously, it's, um, well, it's quite a few elements, I think, that pull together, together to give this disruption its particular shape. Um, and so I think, you know, that's partly because age-related behavioural norms no longer apply to one's child. Um, parents can find themselves falling out of sync with the social practices of those around them. Okay, so you think of their lives, you know, all of a sudden look very different, you know, um, navigating the special education system or um, repeated hospital visits and surgeries. 
participating in a range of early intervention services. Uh, all these things um, are so different. And so, um, so there's that. There's also um, the fact that in our society, we tend to really value independence and autonomy. Um, and I think that can be hard to reckon with as a parent because, you know, you may be you know, looking after a child that might require this kind of care for the rest of their lives. Um, so it's a, it's a profoundly dependent relationship in one sense. And then zooming out a little bit, there's this existential component to this disruption, which is a disruption to live time. You know, you've been living your life, you've reached a certain point, you've got an idea or anticipate where the future's headed. Um, and then all of a sudden, this doesn't make sense anymore. And so a large part, I think, for parents in reorienting themselves is stitching, um, you know, these temporalities back together, the past, future and present, back into a kind of biographical whole, something that makes sense. And so I think, yeah, there's lots of elements, obviously, that, that create this sense of disruption. Um, in terms of men, um, I think, I thought what, what's interesting is that often our dominant conceptions of masculinity or um, prevailing cultural forms of masculinity uh, are associated with a devaluation of the feminine. Okay, so they prize things like um, success in the workplace, being in control, resisting control, um, you know, that kind of thing. And obviously caregiving is often equated with feminine practice. And so I was interested in how they go about shaping an identity for themselves you know, at this nexus. I think for a, lo a lot of men, they, if you haven't had experience with disability or something, you come <clears throat> to the situation with few resources. And so one father, for example, threw himself into breadwinning. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with breadwinning. Um, breadwinning is a form of care itself. But the problem is when it's over-prioritised, I guess, and it comes at the expense of other forms of care, being emotional care, physical care, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, he threw himself into breadwinning, felt more and more estranged from his family and decided that he really needed to be involved more in the day-to-day -day kind of care of his son. And so that, um, that changed that, that emphasis that's on breadwinning often in terms of, you know, a norm around masculinity. You also, on the flip side of that, explored that economic vulnerability with a couple of the men you spoke to. So they felt compromised because they had given up careers and even one of them was working, but he was working from home, which at the time of the study was more unusual. Um, <laughs> and so that role of the breadwinner in traditional masculine identities, even for men who did choose to do more caring, that still became a stigmatisation mm. for them. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. It just shows you how internalised I think these values are, that even when they're aware that they're maybe a good caregiver, they're a good parent, they still can't shape this sense of failure in, in some of these contexts. So, yeah, um, like you said, there was uh, one dad, yeah, who has an eBay business from home. Another one had been laid off from work. Um, I witnessed both of them with their children, obviously, you know, and they were very attentive and responsive and had all these great qualities that they had nurtured and grown through being a caregiver. And yet that didn't seem to factor into the way they saw themselves as men. They still focused on not feeling good enough, feeling like they should be, one of them said, you know, climbing the corporate ladder or, um, you know, the dad that had been laid off. 
uh, felt like he had failed in some in some way, you know, over circumstances that he's got no control over. But yeah, and I guess um, I know your book didn't want to overemphasize the binary of masculine feminine, but you've you've raised caring as being a generally uh, a feminine domain. And I'm just also wondering, as we're speaking, whether the whole area of unpaid work and caring in the home in a domestic realm being unpaid and not valued enough, whoever's doing it, um, also plays into that equation with men because the alternative that they're performing is not seen by them or perhaps society as valuable as working and earning in the corporate or business world. That's an excellent point, yeah. The other element that you talked about in terms of these masculine attributes was the risk of vulnerability and the subordination of empathy. Vulnerability you describe as a core condition of humanhood and something that is necessary in the caring relationship. And yet it was when you became ill yourself that you found yourself able to be vulnerable and that actually then assisted you in that navigation of the caring role that you had. Yeah. Would you like to share a little bit about that experience? I think um, obviously being vulnerable is important because it opens us up. It opens us up to learning about others. Um, you know, one of my favourite care theorists, um, you know, Maurice Hamilton says that, you know, you need to know a little bit about somebody to care about them. Um, and so I think, yeah, being open, um, being vulnerable, being open helps us um, learn about others. You know, it's closely related to being humble, knowing what we don't know. Um, and I think through that, through being open, we can, um, we can learn more about other people and expand our world of care. So in terms of expand, sorry, our circle of those we care about. And so in terms of my own sickness, um, yeah, I had, um, I got Lyme disease when I actually like um, probably around eight months into field work from being in Massachusetts. Um, it took a year for the CDC to uh, diagnose me, but that was really humbling, that whole experience. I kind of got to experience what it was like um, to be vulnerable, to be cared for myself. And I found that and how much I needed that, how much I depended on that, on the tenderness of others and, and then being attentive and responsive to my needs. And so that really changed then um, my own parenting as well. With Dakota, I became far more patient with some of the more labour-intensive parts of, of caregiving. Yeah, exactly. We're going to take a break now for a song, but we're going to come back to talk to Aaron a little bit more because the real magic in the book is the way in which caring can offer new possibilities for not only the caring of a child or another person, but also for discovering uh, oneself. And Aaron's going to talk about how the fathers he interviewed and in his own journey uh, opened up new ways of communication, but also new ways of knowing himself. So we'll head off for a song now, then we'll be back with more from Aaron.
We're back on 3CR Wednesday breakfast and I'm Claudia talking with Aaron J. Jackson about his book, Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities. We're now going to hear from Aaron about some of the transformative powers of caring and the way in which carers can learn new ways of connecting with the people around them as well as connecting with themselves. So Aaron, I thought one of the strongest parts of the book was the way in which fathers of nonverbal children learnt to communicate and connect with their children. Yeah. You alluded to some of the normative milestones and so forth of typical children's pathways. So perhaps um, you might want to talk about some of the normative functions of communication and reciprocity that is experienced with children who can speak and then explain some of the the wonderful ways of communication that are perhaps overlooked when we rely too much on language for communication. Okay, yeah. So um, for many of the parents in the book, and myself included, uh, we're caring for children who are nonverbal and don't respond in predictable ways. Um, So that's to say the... Um, the intimacy that we establish with them isn't based on language or on typical forms of reciprocity where I give something and you give something back. Um, and so experiences of caregiving, I found, can really challenge, you know, what we think is important in communication and, you know, the degree to which cognitive sharing, you know, that we both hold the same meanings in our heads, um, you know, is what really counts in interaction. And so, um, you know, through caring for Dakota and and empathetically being immersed in his world, I learned that there are other important embodied ways of communicating with others and being with others. And I think this is um, where the concept of attunement is uh, quite useful because it describes basically how we can feel another's emotional experiences through our bodily sensations. So we can um, feel their emotional experiences by metaphysically being in their skin. And so, you know, this really becomes quite foundational for parents in communicating with their children. I'll just ground that a little bit with an example. Um, For instance, through, you know, developing this interpersonal sensitivity and being able to attune to Dakota's emotional and mental states, I could walk into a restaurant with him and automatically or intuitively grasp the qualities of the atmosphere and how he's going to respond to them okay so if there's a blender in the background he had sensory sensitivity so a lot of parents I imagine who have children sensory sensitivities can relate but yeah if there's a blender in the background or if maybe the space he's going to experience the space is chaotic you know if there's not uh, much furniture it feels quite noisy um, compared to if there's furniture and partitions that sort of break up sound paths then you might find that more calming lots of elements that sort of coalesce to create the sensory experience for him. And I just found that the resonance of my feeling body, how I was attuned to these spaces had changed through being with him. Like I said, it wasn't that I had to detach and and think about it. It was just a very intuitive grasp of the situation. And this is obviously very important in having his needs met because um, the way he responds in these places can be quite distressing or pleasurable. So, yeah, that's one example of of how I found uh, myself changing through caregiving. And I think this translates into other areas of life. 
when you find yourself being attentive in new ways. Um, I found that this really starts to press upon, really starts to press upon your identity as a father and as a caregiver. It can change the way you communicate with others, um, the things that matter. And you also talked about the role of the body in communication and the role of touch in creating intimacy. Can you give some examples of that? Yeah, so um, uh, the most pleasurable moments I found for for most caregivers um, involve proximity and touching. Um, You know, I would often sit on the floor with Dakota and he would vocalise, choosing from his you know, repertoire of sounds, his giggles and squeaks and groans. Um, and I would sit there and, and copy him and he would copy me back. Um, if my vocalisation was especially weird, he would uh, break out into a giggle. Um, when I passed him a toy, you know, he seemed to get the same pleasure smacking it back to me. Um, you know, he only fleetingly made eye contact and very often you would have to wait for a response but when he responded, there was mutuality. And so, yeah, I found that these moments, I mean, they're so hard to capture, obviously, in words because it's kind of anti-language, you know, the, um, the, the phenomenon that I'm talking about. But um, for most parents, yeah, this really nurtures and establishes a very close, close bond, of course, um, which is the same for all our relationships, not just um, those, you know, that involve caring for a, a severely disabled child. Is that what we call joy? Joy, yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> and the transformation of your inner world, you've talked about that in the book and all the parts we've already discussed, the conflicts, the challenges, the disruption, they all seem to be part of a process that then results in a transformation of the identity of the carer. Can you tell us about this shift and what you describe as a morally productive process? Yeah, I think obviously over time it's not something that happens straight away and some of it is um, done through critical reflection and thinking about things and other times I think um, a lot of this stuff just happens below the threshold of of consciousness. But, um, yeah, obviously by developing, acquiring and developing caring skills and habits, that affects what you can do in the world. It has to impress upon your identity, right? Your moral identity as a person. And so I think this is probably most um, concretely manifest in some of the career orientations that parents undergo. Um, For instance, one father had started as a, he was in tech, had a tech business, but he started in being a special education advocate started in that line of work. You know, there was another, you know, maybe you become an education support worker in the classroom. A lot of helping uh, professions. Uh, One of the mums, I didn't focus on mums, but one of the mums became a counsellor. So you can kind of see these moral reorientations in the the careers people choose and they start trying to close that gap between who they feel like they are and what they do for a living. So care is a value you know, maybe takes a less peripheral place and becomes much more central in their lives. And in terms of the societal values, not just on care, but in terms of ableism and valuing different ways of communicating and different ways of being in the world, does that change also? Uh, For the parents, like, does it change or? 
Well, obviously, so much has changed in in the way you've described, but I'm just wondering about how you are as advocates, not only for your own child, but also for the space in which you both inhabit um, and how your attitude to um, bringing about change in an ableist society manifests itself. Yeah, so, um, yeah, a lot of parents take to uh, online forums they gather um, or around blogs that they might be doing. They form these care communities online. And obviously they have the goal of creating more inclusive and accessible realities for, um, you know, more accessible and and inclusive communities for their children and people like their children. So, um, you know, and often these communities transcend cultural and geographical boundaries. Um, But, you know, there's some, there's these public forms of personal care that, parents also stitch in to the routines and rhythms of everyday life as well. So uh, one father, for instance, he has a daughter called uh, Mia and she's very gregarious and likes to socialise with people. And so he would take her down to the shopping centre where there's lots of things happening and she would like to extend her hand out of her wheelchair to say hello to people. And um, the father noticed that people would just circumvent the wheelchair or pretend to be on the phone or something. Um, And so this really upset me. She'd often burst into tears. And so he started um, anticipating this and just sort of started approaching the people and letting them know that what his uh, daughter's situation was and that she just wanted to say hello and make a connection. And he found that people responded, you know, quite good to this Um, you know they would have this little engagement with his daughter and Mia would be radiant and happy and they would walk away feeling good and um, perhaps if they don't have any experience with disability they've learned something from the interaction with her and I think so in that way parents are really challenging these pernicious kind of norms that are probably quite pervasive in parents lives Um, norms as in you know obviously the kinds of ableism and stuff that parents face um these prejudices and and things so and really limiting as well because we're missing out on the uh the other ways of being and communicating that can be important in any relationship yes exactly Well, thank you, Aaron, so much for talking to us this morning. The book is a wonderful read for all parents and carers. Uh, It's a really big contribution to re-scripting the framework of ability to a more inclusive and wider meaning of normalcy and, and caring. So we thank you for writing the book and thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Aaron J. Jackson, author of Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities. You can find details of the book and more about Aaron's work by following him on Twitter at Coda Cruz. That's K-O-D-A-C-R-U-Z. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial.
And that was a wonderful interview with Claudia and Aaron there. And we're going to have all the details to where you can find Aaron's book up on the Wednesday breakfast page. So do make sure you check that out and we'll have some more details for you there. And now up next, we hear from journalist Jim McElroy on the role of our previous PM, Bob Hawke, and the role that he played in seeking to destroy the left of the trade union movement and his secret dealings with the CIA. Jim spoke with Tuesday Home Times' Jam Bartlett. In a recent Guardian newspaper article by Jeff Sparrow, he set out what many people have either suspected or known, that the former Labor Prime Minister and President of the ACTU, Bob Hawke, rather than his public persona of that all-round Aussie larrikin, was also an informer for the US government and the CIA. Today, retired trade unionist Jim McElroy will follow up on this story. Jim, you never met Hawke, but I'm sure you were aware of the rumours about him, but more importantly, the impact he had on the trade union movement? I didn't know him personally, but, I mean, I was involved in the, the socialist movement in Melbourne initially at the time when Hawke's career was beginning. Of course, he was originally the the advocate for the ACTU back in the 60s. That's where he, he first got his name as the lawyer. And then he became the president of the ACTU from the early 70s. He was involved in a number of different activities as a member of the Socialist Workers League Socialist Alliance at the time. And I was involved in supporting various trade union strikes and so on. I suppose the first, and I did note that the first time I ran across Bob Hawke or the role of Bob Hawke was there was a very famous strike of the State Electricity Commission workers in La Trobe Valley in Victoria in 1972, believe it or not. I actually went down to that strike and and wrote about it for the newspaper Direct Action at the time. And that's where we first ran across the uh, question of Hawke's role in, in trying to basically ameliorate strikes and keep uh, the, the trade union movement moderate and and that was his role. I can actually quote that I attended a, in February a mass meeting of 3,000 angry power workers in your lawn who'd been out on strike and he Hawke and was there and other union leaders worked together to force them or push them to return to work and accept arbitration. They very reluctantly voted to end their strike. It was well known his role. Yes, yes, it was. It was well well known, and uh, that was a very early stage. And I think there's there's strong evidence that he was brought into the role precisely in order to try to tame the, the very strong militancy of the trade unions at the time. In the late 60s, of course, we had the Clary-O'Shea dispute, which probably you know the most significant industrial dispute of, of that period. Um, with a huge national strike and the unions were becoming more and more militant and this coincided of course with the Labour Party becoming stronger in the in the electorate and then the election of the Whitlam government so at the end of 1972 there was a huge movement of the unions and general movement of society 
uh, the, the youth movement and, the, and, and in the end, the majority movement against the Vietnam War, all these things brought together and ended up bringing down the long-standing uh, Liberal country party government and Labor coming to power, and everyone was very optimistic. But from very early in the piece, Hawke was playing a, a moderating role that became part of a key to his career right through from his union role as president of the ACTU right through to becoming um, Prime Minister and then the whole trajectory of the Hawke-Peating government. Rather than a moderating role, was he actually more destabilising? Well, of course, remember there were very sharp factional divisions in the trade union movement at the time. He struggled between the socialist left faction and the the 26 rebel unions in Victoria, and generally speaking, in those days, the Labor Party was much more of a, a real political struggle than uh, what it is today. It's been tamed, and probably Hawke, together with Keating, have played a critical role in the taming of the Labor Party. But the interesting thing, of course, in light of these uh, revelations about his connections to the United States, is that he was seen as someone who could, who could play a role in breaking union solidarity, and that was noted by the the U.S. officials, and in particular the U.S. Labor attached to the embassy very early in the piece, back in the early 70s. I can remember friends a long time ago saying that he was a CIA agent. Yes, well, that was, if we want to come to the most recent um, revelations, of course there was a long-standing feeling that Hawke had, a, and, and it was known that Hawke had connections with the, the US, but uh, there's a new paper now by Cameron Coventry from Federation University, which has been released recently, which investigates embassy documents, uh, US embassy documents from the period 1973 to 79. So that was while Hawke was ACTU president. And uh, they reveal, actually through official sources, close links between Hawke and, uh, and the... And the um, U.S. Embassy, including, no doubt, the CIA. And Coventry says that the U.S. valued their relationship with Hawke because he, and this is a quote, helped protect U.S. defense installations, provided information about union disputes, and warned officials that installations could be targeted. The Americans particularly appreciated Hawke's willingness to de-radicalize the labor movement. Coventry says... Hawk proved useful in preempting and pacifying unionist uh, disputes. And in another section, it says Hawke was an experienced Shamalion, a man who successfully played down his academic record and bookish background to present himself as the ideal Australian Labor leader, later known as the Silver Bodgy, of course. What influence did you do you believe he had on the Whitlam government? I don't have direct evidence, uh, you know, of what actually uh, direct influence he had. Of course, you know, it's a whole uh, other question to analyse what happened to the directory of the Whitlam government. It came to power with enormous hopes, the hopes of the whole nation, that, you know, we would see significant change in Australia, and it began very strongly in that respect. But it was hit by an international economic crisis and various other things, and it began to break into factions, you know, and, and no doubt in the background, you know, he was playing a role in taming the unions in terms of, because he saw 
high wages as a as an economic problem for the Labor government and for the country. So he did play a role in trying to put us a bit of a halter on union struggles right through. And then, of course, remember the pretty infamous end of the Whitlam government when Kerr sacked Whitlam and, and Hawke and Whitlam both came out and said, you know, called on the, uh, the Labor movement and the trade unions to not move towards a general strike, which was, in fact, uh, very much a prospect at the time. If, if there had been a call from Hawke and from Whitlam together for a general strike, I believe we would have seen a different course of Australian history, that we would have seen a mass industrial and political struggle which probably may had a very good chance to overturn the Kerr decision, which was not really set in stone at the time. So I think that he played a significant role then. The next probably major aspect of, of Hawke's career was his role in the Medibank strike of 1976. People will remember one of the great achievements of the Whitlam years was the introduction of Medibank as a genuine uh, free national health scheme. When Fraser came to power, he proceeded to try to abolish Medibank, and which he did do. But then there was a general strike. That was a very significant event. Uh, I just remember it's probably the biggest single day of mass industrial action we've seen. Every I remember I was in Sydney at the time. There was no buses, no trains, no nothing. The Sydney Sydney looked a bit like what it does at the moment. It looked like city under COVID lockdowns. But then at the end of it, um, Hawke made negotiations and eventually struggle was lost in the short term. But then, of course, uh, later on provided the basis for re-emergence of Medicare under the um, Hawke-Keating government later. Just to go back one year to 1975 where you had the sacking, as you said, of the, of the Whitlam government and Pine Gap was, many people believe, was a big part of, of that and the fact that Hawke was working with the US to keep their spy facilities going in there. Whitlam gets sacked because he tried to close down or, or ameliorate the power of Pine Gap. Actually, the specific mention in the, in the Coventry article, which is referred to by Jeff Sparrow, who, who, who wrote a, an, an account of it all in the July 3 Guardian this year, he refers not so much to Pine Gap but to Northwest Cape, which was another crucial base in the north. And it, it played a significant role in, in buying on, well, China, the Soviet Union, Vietnam, and so on. The Labor attaché, who was closely linked to the CIA, contacted Bob Hawke about a potential union dispute at the joint US-Australian spy base at the Northwest Cape. And the cables from the embassy, which have been released, and Tuppentry um, records them, that Hawke, quote, volunteered to intervene informally, saying he felt concern and surprise at the militancy of the workers. So that led to a much more um, attention being paid to Hawke by the, by the US authorities. And a cable was sent to Washington from the US ambassador to Australia in 1974, emphasising the importance of an upcoming visit by Hawke to the United States. So he was being groomed by you know, elements in the United States. The quote is, there is little doubt, this is from the embassy cable itself, there is little doubt that he has a major potential as a Labor Party leader. Now 44, and this is in 1974, 
He has every prospect of being a major figure on political scene for the next 20 years or so, and it'll be worth our while to make a real effort to develop a worthwhile program for him. Coventry also said that the US valued their relationship with Hawke because, quote, he helped protect US defence installations, provided information about union disputes and warned officials that installations would be targeted. So not only was his role in the union movement directly valued, but his role inside the Labor Party of trying to protect US interests in Australia. And of course that came to a fore when he became Prime Minister in the following decade. And on the program next week we'll hear part two of that interview with Jim and also reflections on Bob Hawke by Cora Winter. And as Jan mentioned just then, this was part one of this conversation with journalist Jim McElroy. So do head to Tuesday Home Time for the full conversation and for part two. And that's 3cr.org.au, Home Time Tuesday. And we're going to listen to a quick track and it's going in the sound of Nabokko do Sol. We'll be back. was Nabucco del Sol. Australia might soon be issuing vaccine passports in a bid to restore the economy to some form of pre-pandemic normalcy. Fully vaccinated people may be granted greater freedom of movement, such as entry to restaurants, bars, sports concerts, 
the opportunity to travel, the the list kind of goes on. Um, And we've seen in other countries, specifically across Europe, of how they've particularly done their vaccine passport. But what I want to know today is how will this digitisation of our records affect our online privacy? And so we have on the show Dr Helen Peck, who is a computer and data scientist at the University of New South Wales, who joins us today to speak exactly about the privacy and the data of these online digital vaccine passports. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. And so first up, I guess I just want to know how is it being rolled out currently in Australia? So when somebody is fully vaccinated, what is being delivered to them after that? Um, I think most Australian citizens would be able to go onto the Medicare website and either get a PDF um, documentation that shows they've been vaccinated, or I think the government just recently released um, a sort of more like a ticket, wallet ticket version of um, certificate where you can download the certificate onto your phone, into mm. your um phone wallet, like Apple Apple wallet or Android phone wallets. It seems like quite a lot of a person's future freedom is riding on what sounds like a PDF. That's right, yes. Um, so at the moment, I mean, you, at the intro you mentioned how other countries like or, or the regions like EU is rolling out their version of vaccine passports and um, in, in over there, they have much more investment in the in the infrastructure of this um, issuing of um, vaccine passports and verification of these vaccine passports in the form of more secure um, mechanisms like digital signatures or QR codes. Um, but we don't actually see that in Australia yet. Um, maybe it, it is coming, but at the moment, it is really just what I what I would call a glorified PDF form of your vaccine passport, which can be easily forged. Um, mm. And, you know, it can be just screenshot and sent it over to someone else and things like that. And just quickly back on to that QR code, um, in, in your own opinion, is that something that Australia really should be investing in, that digital infrastructure, I, as you said? I do think so. I mean, if it is, if this fix in passport or in, in the form of... Um, if this is a way out of a pandemic for us to get our freedom back, I think we should have more secure infrastructure. It would um, convince people that using these vaccine passports will be a secure and can be done in privacy, safe manner. Um, at the moment, I was quite actually surprised if, if you actually download the, um, the vaccine certificate from Medicare at the moment onto your wallet. Uh, what you see on the Apple iPhone um, version of it I see your, uh, so I see my name and I see the green tick that shows me that I'm vaccinated. And then it's got date of birth. Um, and my immediate thought was if I want to show this to someone to get in somewhere, that person only needs to know that I've been vaccinated twice or mm. once. Um, why does that person need to know my date of birth, right? Especially information like date of birth is something that we use as a security passing to get into a lot of other systems too. So it's quite private and important information. So I was quite surprised to see that um, just being shown on the um, screen without any protection. So uh, things like that, I think it's if you, if you use QR code, those information can be encoded into the QR code and only a scanner um, sort of mechanical device can read that information 
and that digitally send that information to um, some authorised system. They can securely verify that information. Um, and the verifier doesn't need to know my other information um, at all, just the fact that I've been vaccinated. So a mechanism like that will really be um, necessary if we want to widely roll out um, vaccine passport idea. Mm. And I guess also if if it's in that form of PDF on your phone or in your wallet that you can that you can just show. Yeah. I mean, who needs to see it on a on a daily basis? Like would people be asking to see it unnecessarily as well? Like we don't want to right. share our information it's, with just everyone. Well, thank you for mentioning that. I think actually that that is really an important thing to um, consider because now, say um, before this pandemic, say you had to show your driver's license to a post office um, clerk because you need to collect parcel. There are very few occasions that we need to actually share our identity openly like this. But now with this vaccine passport, you may really need to show this to everywhere you go, be asked to, uh, asked to see this information. So how do we trust these um, so-called verifiers who are asking this information? Do they have legitimate reason to show this, uh, to, to see this information? Um, so so when, I, when we mentioned this uh, digital infrastructure, um, what we actually envisage is people who issue these vaccine passports, people who hold these vaccine passports, and also people who need to see these vaccine passports, verify these vaccine passports, they all need to be registered somehow in the system with proper rights and regulations placed. So when we expose this information to verifier, we can actually do that with confidence, that this person who is seeing my information is uh, doing so with legitimate reason. Mm. And what's the concern if, with the information, potentially you mentioned before, like fraud or or anything like that, what what are your greatest concerns there? I guess it is, um, first, it's not nice to have your information stolen so easily um, and have it in someone else's possession, even if it's not used. Um, but second, once the information is stolen or um, being in a position of someone who's not supposed to have that information, we actually lose control over that information totally. We're quite vulnerable. Whenever I mean, that's why I guess something like privacy is important. Is once you lose that data, once you sort of hand out that data, um, it's really difficult to have control over that. So we don't know what on what purpose that data will be used um, further on, um, or whether it'll be deleted eventually. We just don't have that control. So those control issues and identity theft, misuse, all that is still quite difficult and open open problems. And do you think the majority of us are a little bit almost like numb to our, our digital privacy because there's <laughs> so much of ours I, out yeah, there? I, I do think so too. I guess I'm just wondering whether... I mean, there is this... All, all privacy regulations, serious privacy regulations... I have this principle called, um, main principle called data minimization. So basically the idea is um, collector of the information should minimize the data um, that they collect from the data holder. Um, but if you look at just the example that I showed you about this, um, the vaccine passport, the Apple version of it, uh, the iPhone version of it has my date of birth. 
which I don't know why uh, it's there, right? The pur- purpose of it. Um, so when someone designs um, data sharing system like that, do they really have this data minimization idea um, upfront in their in, in their mind? Because once this kind of data is exposed, as I was saying before, we the holder of that information has no control. It's, it's, it's just vulnerable to um, the data being misused, and um, you know, just just lost, lost mm-hmm. uh, lose that information. If you know what I mean. And, and I guess, like you said before, your your date of birth can be used to verify who you are in many other different forums or many other different digital spaces. And if having a vaccine passport is another way to verify who you are, that could be detrimental to people if that has been been exploited. Who's been unfortunate enough to have their identity stolen that way? Yeah. So since this vaccine passport is it's going to be widely used. Um, I think having this um, idea of minimising exposure of important private information really should be at the front of all the systems that we'll be rolling out. Mm. And is there a way that we can try and put a bit more pressure onto those people that we need to to make those changes so that the structure of this passport is is a lot stronger than it is now? Um, I guess people just being aware of these issues and um, I guess having those media exposure of those issues being reported, um, just educating people that uh, we may be numb to this, um, some of the sort of private information being leaked out um, through opportunities like this. But we really should be aware that this is a serious problem. I mean, it's it's your information. If you don't care about um, controlling it or, uh, or protecting it, who would? Absolutely. So I think we all, we all should do um, our role in, um, you know, having our privacy protected. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Helen Peck, for speaking Not with me today. Thank, Thank you. you. And, um, yeah, hopefully we can come back and have another chat about our privacy because it's really key. I'm very keen to to not be the numb person in the room. Um, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's very important. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thank you so much. No worries. Bye. And that was Dr. Helen Peck, who is a computer and data scientist at the University of New South Wales, speaking to us about the privacy of vaccine passports. And I think we've got time for just another song, which is wonderful. Who'd have thought it with such a jam-packed show? But we do. So here's Thelma Plum with Around Here. Keep on walking Cos I've been walking for days There are blisters on my feet And they are turned to crazy It's like I'm walking through a maze Up my own Cos running from something Just to turn around and find You were running from yourself Cause everything that once felt real does not feel anymore Cause everything that once felt real does not feel anymore Around here, around here, around here, around here 
And that's the end of our show today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We've had some awesome guests on the show um, and it's been wonderful. And just another quick one. If you want to know more about Aaron Jackson's book, it's called The Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities. We spoke to Dr. Helen Peck as well just now and also heard from Judith Peppard again and Jan Bartlett, 3CR Legends. Thanks again for joining us. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.